Finally, we have arrived at that time of year where we get to start singing Christmas carols in church. You know, we all just spend all year waiting for this month to play those songs. I think we should, I always want to, uh, I've always thought that I would remind myself around Easter that we'd spend like two weeks in Easter singing Christmas carols around Easter time, but I seem to forget every year because we start singing all the, the Easter songs at that time of year. This year, thinking about our Christmas time and, and leading up to uh, Christmas and Advent season, um, I want to take three biblical themes, kind of overarching themes of Christianity that, that are housed in the Bible, but that happen to be particularly embedded in the Christmas holiday. And these, these big themes that are, are really represented within how we participate and, and focus on Christmas. And I will take time to, to focus on these things. My purpose is to highlight the themes, the biblical themes that are present in Christmas and focus on them, but also not to just focus on Christmas, but the larger context that these themes uh, guide us into our faith so that we, our faith will grow. Those themes are waiting, gifts, and joy. And, and those three words seem to, in a lot of ways, encapsulate Christmas, right? We, we spend a lot of time waiting, you know, hoping that Christmas will come. I think for kids, you know, that waiting is, is particularly hard. But even like we were just saying, we spend a lot of time waiting. We look forward to this time of year to get to sing the songs we don't normally get to sing and, and see the church decorated like it's not normal. And, and this is something that we wait for. Gifts, obviously gifts is a big part of Christmas, right? That's uh, one of the major ideas. And, and then the joy that we generally celebrate with this holiday. So those are our, our three themes. Today, we're going to start talking with waiting. And as I said, as a kid, I can especially remember waiting. <laughs> like, is it ever going to come? And, and for me growing up, we lived away from my family. So there was this whole process that we went through. I, we would put the tree and, and my mom and dad would start to put gifts under the tree and I'd watch them go. And, and then uh, about a week before uh, Christmas, we'd take all the gifts and we would pack them in the back of a Datsun B210 you know, and they would be in the windows and around me, and, and I would literally just kind of be in this little space in the back seat, uh, and then we would drive down to my grandparents, and we'd unload everything, and, and, and Christmas Eve was my grandfather's favorite holiday, and he would always go buy these big boxes of fireworks, and we'd have this big family gathering with food and, and the giving of gifts, and then we'd go out with Grandpa and and shoot fireworks off for an hour, and, and it was just a big deal. And I remember every year waiting, waiting, waiting to get to go see my grandfather and, and, and stay with them that week and, and so forth. The waiting of Christmas has come up with some interesting even sayings that recognize that this waiting period. You ever heard anybody being called, well, you're slower than Christmas, you know, because it just seems like it never arrives. In the Old Testament, we're given many prophecies about a special person coming from God to serve humanity in, in, in a variety of ways. Over time, this special one was called the Anointed One, and he became to, know, he became to be known as Messiah. That's what Messiah means, 
God's anointed or, or the anointed one of God. That this, this promise was made throughout the Old Testament about one to come. The first promise was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This first mention of this Messiah, this anointed one of God, comes from God himself. And he's actually, it's in a promise that God is speaking to Satan. And it's a conversation between those two that God makes the first mention of one coming to, to be. And so Messiah would be this defeater of Satan. 1 Corinthians 15 kind of draws back on that idea. It says, then comes the end when he will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And so Messiah <coughs> would be this defeater of Satan. Later, uh, God, uh, to, to Abraham, God would say this in Genesis chapter 22, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. The Messiah was one who was designed to be a blessing to all people in all times in all places. And in John 3, 16, we read, for God so loved the world. And so this is the Messiah. To King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, In your day, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will become from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Messiah was to be a king an everlasting king. Philippians 2 tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Messiah is an everlasting king. These are some of the, the prophecies that were mentioned. There's, there's literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. Some were miraculous in, in, their, in their concept. And like from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord will, himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. It's a prophecy not only about the virgin birth, but about what we've been singing about, Emmanuel, God with us, that this miraculous birth, what we call and celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation, that God himself came to be with us. Some of the prophecies in the Old Testament are very, very specific. There's one about where he'd be born from Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem. Some prophecies about where he would grow up. Matthew 2, 23 uh, recognizes that he would grow up in a, in a lowly place. He'd be called a Nazarene. He'd come from this lowly, unknown place of Nazareth. Many are very, very specific, especially when it comes to the way that Messiah would die. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
in all, some, and, and depending on how you break down the particular prophecies, uh, there are up to over 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament talking about this coming one. Interestingly enough, those prophecies, the hundreds of prophecies that are in the Old Testament, they occurred over a 3,600-year period. From the time that God first spoke to, to Satan in the Garden of Eden to the very last prophecy, which is in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their father, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." This is the last messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, oh, uh, kind of capping off the 3,600 years that, that God told through the prophets these, this promise of this coming one, coming one. And then God gets quiet for another 400 years. For over a 400, about 430, I think is, the, is a little bit more specific, but they call them the 400 silent years that there was no prophet. Uh, that prophesied from God, and they call them the silent years. And this time of really intense waiting, waiting for these prophecies to be fulfilled, waiting for the things that God promised to come. So when you look at that, when you take hundreds of prophecies with 3,600 years between them, with a 400 silent year gap, you have what? Lots of waiting. Lots of waiting. It's interesting that that waiting period breaks, that 400 silent years breaks actually with the fulfillment of Malachi's last promise. It's a promise of John the Baptist to come and lead the way before Jesus comes into his ministry. Interestingly, all four of the Gospels require, uh, uh, tell the story of John the Baptist. I'll record uh, John the Baptist pre, pre, uh, leading the way for Christ to come into his ministry. Actually, Mark that we've been reading here in church starts with John the Baptist and Jesus's public ministry. And that's where he picks up the story because that waiting period was finally over. Something was happening. The, the 4,000 years they've been waiting for Messiah, it was starting to unwind and happen. I want us to read a story. If you have your Bibles today, you can turn to Luke's gospel, the second chapter, if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. I think this is a story, this is a Christmas story that happens. We read this time of year, you know, there's, there's certain passages of the Bible that seem to, like the songs we sing this time of year, there's certain passages in the scriptures we seem to focus on this time of year. And this is one of those passages. And I think it particularly is about waiting Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38, you can follow along. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle, of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And, his ma and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. 
and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. <clears throat> and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, uh, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We have the story of Simeon and Anna, these, these two people that are there in the temple the day they bring Jesus to, to fulfill the requirements of the Jewish law for this newborn babe. These two people had been sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. Much like the rest of, of Israel had been waiting for the Messiah, uh, they had been sitting there waiting for this day to come. Simeon had had a special revelation. He'd been told by God that, that he wouldn't die until he, he got to see the Christ child, the anointed one. The word Christ is the same, in, the, in the Greek is the same as the Hebrew Messiah, which means God's anointed. And so they're sitting there waiting. I think these two are great examples of waiting. Uh, maybe the better way to say it, these are two great examples of faith. That these two people had abounding faith. And, and that faith is revealed through their patient waiting for God's fulfillment of his promises. And they, and they get to see this and be take, part, take part of this. And the silent years have now ended. Uh, it's interesting, the, the silent years actually ends uh, with Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, after he's muted for a while, he gets to make the first prophecy. He makes a prophecy. He's the first person to speak a prophecy after the 400 years since Malachi. Here we have Simeon come on and he actually makes another prophecy. So God is speaking to the people. God's on the move again and things are happening and the Messiah's coming. The waiting seems to have finally be over. But these two teach us that, that faith and waiting are very, very connected. And, and much of our faith is grown and sometimes challenged in this waiting period. But waiting is, is really integral to faith. And, and that's what I want to talk a little bit about today as we, we think about this 
idea, this, this theme that's kind of housed within the waiting period that we have as we start the month of December, as we wait for all the festivities that we will have, it's a time for us to remind ourselves that waiting is integral to faith. This is a, a big theme within the scriptures, and as we maybe can use this month, as we start to think about, well, as we get patiently waiting for the days that our family will arrive, or we'll do our traditions, or, or whatever it is that we wait for, as we see children kind of being impatient waiting, may we remind ourselves of just how important waiting is to our faith. And so I want to talk about three elements or three aspects of waiting that are integral to faith. Number one, when it comes to waiting, the, the first aspect of that is what we'll call trust and reliance. That, that when it comes to waiting for God, there's a, a certain trust and reliance we have in God. Waiting is a particular challenge for those of us who put our faith into God. You may remember back to a story, another story in the Old Testament, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the uh, Ten Commandments, right? And he goes up on the mountain, and the people are down at the bottom. And in, in Exodus chapter 32, it says, they saw that Moses delayed. And so they go, well, let's make a golden calf. <laughs> 40 days. It only took 40 days before the children of Israel's faith buckled under the waiting period. It says that's what they did. They, they were like, what's taking him so long? We've waited for 40 days and he's not come down, so let's make a golden calf for ourselves. Waiting can be a great challenge to our faith. And it can either strengthen our faith or it can cause our faith to buckle at times. And so we must embrace that, that we must trust God, that we must rely on God, that we must turn to God, and that we must be steadfast in this waiting so that our faith doesn't buckle. There's some great examples that, uh, to the contrary. In Hebrews, this is, uh, if you want to write these down so that you can read these later, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, it talks about these people who had great faith. Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Gideon and, and David and, and, and just we call it the hall of fame of faith. Some of the, the great people who had great faith. And here's what it says about them. It says all these died, all these faithful people, all these people that God was pleased with because of their faith. They died without receiving the promises. Abraham never lived to see his offspring become as plentiful as the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. He never lived to see the day uh, that his offspring became a blessing to the whole world. They, they died without receiving but the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance... And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And then if indeed they were thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to turn back and return to it. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That these hall of fame of faithful people spent their lives saying, God's made promises, and I might not ever see it in this life, but they saw it from afar, and they, and they kept 
waiting. They stayed there. They kept their trust and their reliance on God, even though this mortal life may pass before they got to where they thought they were going to end up. And it said God was honored to be their God. He wasn't ashamed to be their God because they had complete trust and complete, complete reliance on him. In fact, when we think about the promises of God, we must admit that all promises, kind of the idea of a promise, has embedded in it a waiting period, right? I promise to, and then the person that you made the promise to waits for you to fulfill it. If there's not a waiting period, it's just a, a gift. <laughs> you know, I'm giving it to you right now. And promises have embedded them a future time that I will follow through on what I said. And so as we live this life, as we think about waiting, where is your faith being tested or challenged? Because you're waiting for God to do something. Is there something in your life where you're, you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting? Are you being tempted to say, well, God's not coming through and, you know, it's been 40 days and maybe I need to move on? Or are you going to just embrace it and trust God completely? Trust and, lie, and reliance is part of waiting for God and trusting Him to do what is best. Waiting has another aspect that's really integral and challenging to faith also. We call that endurance and long-suffering. Having to deal with unpleasant things in life is a challenge to our faith. And waiting for God to, to answer, waiting for God to provide, waiting for God to do whatever God's going to do requires us sometimes to endure things, especially as we live, as those Hall of Fame of Faith said, as we live as strangers in this world, as we live in a place where we don't belong, when we're not yet in heaven, that this causes particular suffering and, and that this waiting requires us to have endurance and sometimes what's old-fashioned long-suffering, that we can be patient and wait even when it's difficult. In Mark's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verses 16 through 19, this is the story of the parable, or this is the parable of the sower and the soils, or the seed and the soils. And it describes, in these passages, it describes the two different middle-type soils, what's called the rocky ground and the thorny ground. And listen to what it says. It says, and some are like seeds sown on the rocky ground. They hear the word, and at once they receive it with joy. But they themselves have no root, and they remain for only a season. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. They remain for only a season. Their, their waiting period is pretty short. Why? Because it got tough. In, their, their endurance wasn't there. They had no root in them. They, their, their faith was weak, and it's revealed because they don't wait, they don't hang on, they don't endure or suffer long because of the Word. Their faith, and, and it, this reveals that their faith was weak and probably non-existent, that they didn't bear any fruit. Verse 18 says, goes on, and says, Others are like seeds sown among the thorns. They hear the Word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That when it comes to sacrifice and long suffering and endurance and, and sticking with it, no matter the reward is immediate or not, people fall away. 
And so waiting on the Lord, waiting in our faith, requires us to sometimes embrace long-suffering. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 says this, You will be hated by everyone because of my name. This is speaking to believers particularly. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. This same concept is important to Matthew because he mentions it again in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13. It says, And they will deliver you over to be resented and killed, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. See how this idea of waiting is a biblical theme for those who are followers of Christ. Those who have dedicated themselves to love God above all. To serve God above all. And to be part of the name that we call Christians and to serve Jesus. That that he was hated by the world and we will be hated and that inquires us. To have faith that endures, that perseveres the ridicule and the outcast and the suffering of being a follower. And it's through that waiting, that long suffering to hang in there that our faith is grown and brought about the joy of salvation. And so waiting on the Lord requires this dedication to stick it out no matter how difficult it gets and not be among those who whose love grows cold and those who fall away because times are difficult the third aspect of waiting anticipation and hope so there's trust and reliance there's endurance and long suffering and then It's anticipation and hope. What makes us trust in God? What makes us dedicated to endure no matter what comes? Well, it's this last one, this anticipation and hope of what is to happen. This whole idea of of anticipation and hope, uh, this longing for the Messiah to come, is revealed to us. Eve, back all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Eve names her third son, the one that kind of uh, replaces Abel after Cain killed him, she names him Seth. Uh, the word Seth, the Seth is a traditionally masculine name with roots in Egyptian, Hebrew, and then the Bible. It can mean to put, it can mean anointed, it can mean compensation or appointed. And I think there's some hints. And when when Eve names this child Seth, there seems to be some hints in her thinking that that God has already said one's coming, that verse we read, that one's coming to deal with Satan, it's going to set things with Satan, and and that this word Seth can mean anointed or Messiah or appointed one. It seems to hint that Eve thought this was the promise. She was anticipating it. She was looking for it. And when she gives birth to Seth, to, the, to another child, she says, he's here. This must be him. Her, her anticipation and her excitement and her hope uh, is revealed in even the name she gives him. Now, we know that it's actually not Seth that is the Messiah, but it is from the line of Seth, one of his descendants, 
much further down the line that becomes the actual anointed one of God. And so as we think here at, East, at Christmas, we often spend much of our time looking back. But our faith also requires us to live with anticipation and hope. And that we find ourselves again kind of in another waiting period. That, that for roughly 4,000 years, the people of God waited for the Messiah to show up the first time. And we know the story of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And now we're waiting once again. Are we waiting with anticipation and hope? Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11 reminds us. Well, so when they'd come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So this is after the resurrection. The, the disciples are, are meeting Jesus and they're like, is it time? Is it now? Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And he said, it is not for you to know. Times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So what's he telling them there? Wait. You guys just wait. You don't need to know the time. Just wait. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This prophecy starts the book of Acts, the birth of the church. And that is where we find ourselves today, do not knowing the time, but waiting patiently for God. We put our trust and our reliance that God is going to fulfill this. And yes, there's some suffering and some long suffering and some endurance we have to do in these times. It's been, after all, 2,000 years since he departed. But that's just half the time they waited for him in the Old Testament. But yet we find ourselves waiting. And I guess my thought today is do we anticipate and hope for the Lord's return as those would have, as Simeon and Anna hoped and anticipated and longed for the day of the Messiah's first arrival? Can we agree with Revelations 22? It says, starting with verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if you, anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes any of the words away from this book of prophecy, God will take his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. He who testified to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all.
Amen. So as we think about Christmas, how many of us could honestly say, if Jesus' return was my Christmas present, that would be the greatest joy of my life. That, that I want that to happen, that I anticipate that that happen. I, I hope for that to happen. It reveals a lot of our faith about how good that is and how much we want that. And so as we go through this waiting period for Christmas, may we remember how important waiting is to our faith, that we must trust God and rely on Him to fulfill His promises in His time and see them and welcome them and embrace them from afar, that we have to be dedicated to endure whatever long-suffering by following Him it requires to us, that we will not lose heart, we will not turn back, we will stick to our faith no longer, no matter how long we must wait. And while we wait, we will anticipate, hope for, look forward to the day that Jesus returns.